Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. We are having a special program today here at Global Minnesota on race and responsibility in the 21st century. What can we learn from South Africa and how can we share what we're learning with the rest of the world? Today we have special guests, two guests who know Minnesota and know civil rights and know struggle deeply for the rest of us to be able to learn from. I want to start with a question. I want to uh, ask, Sidley, what, what did you think when you first heard the news from Minneapolis? What was your thoughts about that process? Thank you very much, Mark. And I would like to thank um, Global Minnesota as a whole, as well, your entire team for the invitation of what is a very important um, conversation that we're having. Um, briefly, my first thought was really, I, it was shock. It was, oh no, that, that was my, those were my first words, oh no. Um, and that it has happened again. Because, you know, with South Africa and the US over the years, the decades, the struggles have been so intertwined that, and also now with the advent of social media and um, all other forms of media, we are very much aware of the, at least the national issues that are happening in the US. And we've been following, and we've been following the struggle around pol police brutality when it comes to African Americans in particular. So my first thoughts really were, oh no, it's it's, it's happened again. It's it's Sandra Bland. It's it's. Um, Eric Garner again, it, 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 it hit home because also of the history um, that we have gone through South Africa, but also the history that African Americans have gone through and continue to go through and the, and the sisterhood and the brotherhood of that. And maybe to share also, Mark, that when, when it happened, I recalled when we were part of the fellowship, the Hubert H. Humphrey Fulbright Fellowship, that I participated in, in based at the University of Minnesota, they took us around the community to also familiarize us with the community so that we know the community in which is hosting us. And one of the places they took us, in, not Minneapolis, I think, um, and there were flowers at the corner with a cross and they told us it's in remembrance of a young African-American man who had been killed by the police. So when it happened, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a shock that it's, it's happened, it's still happening. And it's also the sense of what, what more needs to happen? What, what needs to be done? What needs to be done? What needs to be done? And then those thoughts go into trying to understand how the system itself can be undone to ensure that no more lives can be lost. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Lejeune, you've been watching for a lifetime, but you've been also traveling and working a lot in Africa. And as the honorary consul of South Africa here in Minnesota, you have a very special relationship. But I also know that you've had a relation through the African Union with many of the countries. What have been your thoughts about the things that we can learn from South Africa that you even think about even right here in the, the heat of this moment, of this moment of great fury and grief 
what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I was so uh, pleased that the Minnesota Orchestra decided to do a tour of South Africa and take so many first time visitors to five different cities in South Africa and understand the need for cultural competence before they made that trip. But that is less than two years ago. And I remember sitting down uh, for lunch with Hector Peterson's sister and her telling us how her little brother was killed by police that were militarized and in tanks uh, at a school protesting apartheid and Bantu education. And that's less than two years ago, but Hector Peterson's murder is seared in my mind. And it's seared in the minds of people around the world. And when we get to this accumulation of death and the horrific manner in which George Floyd was murdered, it echoes around the world. It's, it's accumulation, a continuous accumulation. So I've heard from contacts in Kenya, which is the newest member to the UN Security Council and various contacts around the world, uh, just expressing astonishment with what uh, has been allowed to happen in the United States. Mm -hmm. And what do you think can be the ways that our friends and colleagues in South Africa and around the world can help keep us energized, inspired, heart-filled to make those changes? Because there will be resistance to change. It, it wouldn't be a problem if there wasn't like people who were in a way thought they were benefiting or fought, saw some reason in the structure of white supremacy to see that this system, somehow they don't want it changed. If the American people in the movement that we see and in the polling and other things are demanding change now, what can we learn from South Africa that can help us keep moving ahead in a positive way towards that change and to never quit? I mean, the apartheid struggle was one that just kept going and going and going until success and there's some some real uh, remembering that that struggle seemed impossible but change came well i think first of all that endurance is what we can learn from south africa and we can also learn about the spirit of ubuntu and learn about our interconnectedness in terms of all humanity the suffering of one is the suffering around the globe. And we have spent so much time in the United States worrying about terrorism that we have let a number of civil rights, human rights, civil liberties, and checks and balances go unheeded. So now we find ourselves in a position where too much power has been put in the hands of the police. Too many uh, barriers have been put in terms of discipline and removal. And we're kind of waking up to a nightmare that our elected officials let happen. Sidley, I saw you jumping in. 
Yes, um, thanks, thanks, Mark. I think um, in terms of what can be done, I think the internationalization of the movement, for one, the anti-apartheid movement worked because, and it sustained, um, as very much as Judge Lang says, the resilience. The resilience came also as a result of the interconnectedness around the world. And this interconnect interconnectedness was pursued. It didn't just come up. It was pursued. That's why you had um, exiles, whether they were in New York, whether they were in Brisbane, whether they were in Ireland. They took up the work. They made the connections with those communities. They took the fight to the South African embassies. So I would urge that as the movement in the US in different parts of the country is strengthening and moving that connect globally. Let's connect um, with, with supporters and, 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 and civil organizations in South Africa, in Kenya, in Australia, in Ireland. What we've seen over the past three weeks um, as we were discussing um, before we started has been the ground swell across the world, across the world. I've seen matches that I have not seen since the anti-apartheid movement of Scotland. In Scotland, I saw um, just recently people saying that people saying that this is not what we stand for. We are not for fascism. We are not for racism. So I would urge that let's tap into that. Let's tap into those connections globally. That's where the resilience will come in. And that is also where the elected officials will not have a choice but to take action because they will feel the power coming from the support from the rest of the world. And Mark, South Africa is the doula giving birth to this current movement. I was in Durban in 2001 at the UN conference on racism and xenophobia and other forms of intolerance where South Africa led the world in terms of making resolutions against the transatlantic slave trade, recognizing what has happened to people of African descent under colonialism and the genocide that occurred and then persisted, South Africa persisted to bring a document to the UN and to declare a decade for peoples of African descent. And it's during mm -hmm. this current decade that the 45 African nations could stand up before the UN Human Rights Commission and demand that this issue be addressed in real time. So I, it is my thanks to South Africa for keeping uh, on course and making us in a position globally to be able to have structures, voices, seats at the table to continue to make change. Well, one of the ways I've seen this, at least uh, recently, is there's a global black youth movement. They've been connecting global black youth around issues particular around the COVID pandemic, because people of African descent have in every country, in every circumstance, in every situation, had the greatest devastation from this pandemic. And they're trying to say, in a louder voice as they can, whether you're on the coast of Colombia or in the favelas in Brazil or in South Africa, wherever you are in Minneapolis or in Texas, um, there is a global situation here and we need to be communicating and understanding and addressing it because it's a global phenomena. And I think this is an element of having 
youth and young leaders really kind of leading the way. And that's certainly the case in terms of the struggle that has erupted in the US against police brutality, against institutionalized racism, against white supremacy structures. Young people have been the leaders. And if I remember right, that was one of the inspiring things about the anti-apartheid movement yes. was the, uh, the youth. And we youth get older, of course. But if I'm remembering right, it was also youth-led. Definitely, Mark. Um, you know, the youth have been at the forefront of the struggles um, in South Africa. During um, the anti-apartheid movement, um, I mean, 1976, the Soweto uprising, just recently, um, and I'm connecting this now, that as part of what's happening in the U.S. is the whole you know, removing the Confederate statutes um, that's also starting up that whole discussion. Our youth demanded since, I think from 2015, that um, they started a movement called Rhodes Must Fall. Now, Cecil Rhodes was the personification of what colonialism wanted to do in Africa. They said Rhodes Must Fall at the University of Cape Town. Students, they decided, and that was the decision. And despite resistance at first from the university, resistance from the government, resistance from other sections of society who did not understand at the time what they were asking, demanding, roads fell. That statue, they took it down. And that started an entire conversation in the country saying, why is it, why must we? Uh, look up into these, you know, symbolisms of our oppression, our parents' oppression, our ancestors' oppression. Why? Since 1994. So our youth has been at the forefront. And from roads must fall, that movement, it evolved into a fees must fall movement. Ah. Underneath that, yes, underneath that fees must fall movement were the young people saying, since 1994, we have had political freedom. But what is political freedom, Mark, if the systemic, systemic other prisons still occur? Poverty, inequality, unemployment, that you can have political freedom. That battle was won. We won that in 1994. But the real, real prison, the real apartheid that remains now is that of economic injustice must fall, that we cannot afford to partake in education in South Africa. We cannot afford to partake in this economy. We are alienated and we cannot engage meaningfully as the citizens of South Africa. Fees must fall. And that fees must fall movement evolved also further into a movement where they were questioning and saying, but what is this curriculum that we are being taught? We must decolonize the curriculum. So to, uh, the youth mark has been at the forefront and we appreciate them so because they challenge and they keep challenging and they keep saying, but the work is not done. So here in South Africa, as much as the anti-apartheid movement, it, 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 it delivered us 1994. We were resilient. We, were, we struggled. We got to 1994, but there's definitely a, an a clear understanding and a clear acceptance and a clear resolve to move forward, understanding that the work is yet to be finished. We are still far from over to undo 
each and every brick on which apartheid was built on, especially around economic injustice. I feel like that aspect of persistence for a huge goal, like taking down apartheid fundamentally, has to be married to persistence about the long-term goals, the dismantling. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. there's a Civil Rights Act and a Voting Rights Act in the U.S. Those are important, but it's the disparities. It's the uh, discrimination. These are the things yeah. that are really the fuel of this fire that was struck with a match with an especially cruel uh, murder. And having that perspective of long term is, of course, something that is both a study, reading, knowing history, but the passing down of stories and also the integration of the young and old in the conversations about where are we and where are we going. And it feels like this is something that sharing stories like the story, the Cecil Rhodes story, is a way that we in the United States say, oh, many other people have considered this because we've seen a lot of statues torn down of dictators and, uh, you know, in Poland or in Russia, or, you know, it, it, we have some media fed imagery, but to have the story as part of how a movement made a leap and then a conversation and then a national change of thinking, uh, this is, you know, there was a resistance from the government, which was an African National Congress government, resisted the young people's demands, it sounded like, and they were able to then fuel a conversation. And now uh -huh. that's the kind of learning or the kind of lesson that can come more easily into hearts that are maybe arguing about something, but in the end have the same fundamental values. And, 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 and I think, okay. please go ahead, um, Judge Lang, please. The children in the United States had to leave the classroom to march with Dr. Martin Luther King because their parents were threatened with economic ruin if they continued the protest marches. So the children became the face of the movement. They marched against uh, Bull Connor, they suffered the bites of the dogs, the fire hoses, all those things the children endured because they recognized the importance and the necessity to persevere. Those same children as they got older stood up and said, we must divest from South Africa because of their apartheid policies. That generation mm -hmm. took the lead on college campuses demanding divestment and demanding an end to apartheid. And so those things that start with children, they don't lose their perspective or lose their will or lose their sense of justice. They persevere in the various places that they, they find themselves. In the US, we have the youth as you spoke of, and we also fail to listen to the youth who asked us to stop mass shootings in the schools. And so we become tone deaf to certain pleas of youth as a society, but the youth still have their beliefs and they will surface when uh, the opportunity presents itself. 
So for many of us, we think about those opportunities. Uh, sometimes they're marching, sometimes they're demonstrating, sometimes they're passing a resolution and pressuring an administration at a college, but sometimes they're voting or working for a candidate or running for office. I know when I first thought about running for office, it was sort of a, a novel thought I hadn't considered, but I had come to realize that in a democracy, everybody has to participate somehow, and some you have to find the way that's possible. It seemed to me that the most precious image that humanity has about democracy has been that snaking mile-long line from South Africa at the first election, at least for my age and my generation, that image of a line that gave inspiration to the rest of the world is alongside of long lines that are dangerously uh, inflicted on voters because some places are making it harder to vote, period, and voters are having to make choices. And so it's interesting to even use the lens of the democracy uh, as we use the word in the context of voting and learning from South Africa, uh, you know, what was that like, that whole uh, experience, but also thinking about how we aid each other, but especially learn that inspiration from South Africa about, you know, when you have the right to vote, it's a responsibility. I think mm -hmm. of it also in the context of like the truth and reconciliation process, there are things that have to happen in societies that have been deeply divided. That might be one way to talk about the United States at this moment. Thank you, Mark. Uh, maybe on the voting, I, you know, I, 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 I could not vote in 1994. I was still too young to vote. But I did accompany my grandfather who voted um, for the first time. Wow. I cannot <laughs> tell you, I cannot put into words the, I cannot put it into words, but it, it, it is, it is, it is a priceless, priceless privilege. And to understand that people laid down their lives so that we could exercise this privilege is, is also a, a it cannot, it's, it's an indescribable um, feeling. And it's something that us here at home, we are also trying very hard to ensure that the younger generation as sometimes because some 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 how should i put it some promises have not been met have not been kept there is disappointment in some in some quarters on some things and that at times can translate into being disillusioned about the whole notion of voting which is something that at times even in the us it happens for example in our last general elections last year 2019 we were voting for the National Assembly. Um, the highest proportion of the age population that did not vote were those who are aged between 18 and 25. They're very, very young ones. And that is a danger because it tells us that we need to better our education to them to say, this is what this means. It means that we need to listen better and hear them when they tell us, this is why I did not go to vote. It means that our outreach, 
um, whether as, as the elders in society and whether as um, those who are charged with delivering public services in government has to be better. But that, that privilege, because the moment you lose that, you lose your voice. In the system of democracy that we have, there is no other, there is no other avenue for you to make that direct influence to say, this is the person that I want to put in there because they best represent my dreams, they best represent what I want. Just to say that on the voting alone, it, 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 1994 seems far at times, but it also seems only like yesterday because amongst us are still elders who remember what it was not to have that voice. I think if we can link the young ones and to remember that, that when others did not have the opportunity to make that voice and how alienated and how disconnected from the nation and the society um, um, that, made, that made them feel. So the voting remains important, it is vital. And we need to work harder to ensure that everyone understands the importance of voting in a democratic, democratic society. Thank My you parents. so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I just want to say uh, people should be entering your questions on the chat box. I forgot to say that in the beginning. So please put your questions there. Judge Lang. Yes, my parents moved to Minnesota so that they could have the right to vote and express themselves without uh, harassment, intimidation. Uh, when they moved to Minnesota, there was a literacy test for Black people in the South. One of the questions on the literacy test was how many bubbles in a bar of soap? So there was clear voter suppression, even though Black people on paper had the constitutional right to vote, there was voter suppression hindering uh, through poll taxes or unreasonable tests to prevent that voting. Now today we are in a new wave of voter suppression in the United States. The, uh, the state of Kentucky under the guise of COVID-19 has reduced its polling places from 3,700 to a mere 300. And so can you imagine what's going to happen when only 300 polling places are open for a statewide election? It's designed to discourage and deter the electorate from, from being able to cast their ballot. And so there's numerous, numerous efforts to suppress the vote using the COVID-19 pandemic to uh, divert, close, and deny access to the polling place. Sidley, we have a question about the truth and reconciliation process. How, who was involved? How effective was it? Are there elements of it that we should be considering here in the midst of our struggle? That is a very good question, Mark. And it is one of those questions that, to be quite frank, even as South Africans, we are still, um, we ask ourselves as we also, uh, you know, are still trying to maneuver around issues of race and responsibility. Um, the TRC was a voluntary process in which 
the perpetrators could come and admit what they did and then the survivors or the families of the survivors of the atrocities would get the opportunity to face the perpetrator and then the perpetrators would apply for for um, amnesty and based on the recommendations of the commissioners then they would receive the amnesty it from a standpoint, it, it really depends on, on, on your perspective, to be quite honest, whether it, it served its purpose or not. For people who were looking for justice, and I think it definitely did not serve its purpose. For people who were looking for answers, it served the purpose to a certain extent because then the perpetrators were able to tell them what happened, but then you would have to trust that the perpetrator is saying exactly what happened and not saying what they think the commissioners want to hear so that they could be granted amnesty. What it did afford, I think at a broader societal level, was a space where the people, the survivors who chose to participate in it, it gave them the space to be heard. Because a, a key, key, I think, important um, issue of the pain, the lingering pain and the scars that uh, many of our people, we all still carry, is not having had that space to be heard because of so many people's lives were destroyed, communities were destroyed. To have that space to be heard and to have that pain acknowledged, not in a abstract way, not in that abstract way that says, you know, um, apartheid this, this, so many lives were, were, were destroyed, um, so many people were, 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 were killed, in, not in that abstract way, but in a way that says, yes, Zintle, we hear you, we hear your story, and we understand and we are in with you. So it, depending on your perspective and what you were looking for when you engaged and when you participated um, in the TRC process, then you would say it worked or it didn't work. I know Colombia tried a, 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 a not a similar exact model for its situation, um, but it did try a, an adapted model they thought would work for their circumstances. And I think for us, in terms of as we are still looking to, to, to find that, that that's that spot where we can say as a nation and where we can say as a country we are okay now the trc remains one of those of those issues that we are still in conversation about as was the work finished one of the key issues being was the work finished was the work finished thanks mark I was a U.S. observer to the TRC hearing involving the death of Stephen Biko. And the TRC did not find that the police who mm. applied for amnesty had told the truth. And after that uh, finding, there was no prosecution of the police in the death of Stephen Biko. But the process mm. itself, even though it did not work justice, revealed such an appalling situation inside the South African police force. 
he revealed a killing squad, government sanctioned uh -huh. Uh -huh. to uh -huh. kill at will young people, potential uh, activists, and ex exterminate uh, people just because they were reaching a certain age. It revealed a widespread pattern of abuse of power within the police agency and revealed a total, total lack of any kind of empathy by these police officers that were part of this killing squad that went uh, out at will to hunt and kill individuals. And so I think that uh, them feeling this impunity and this power is a lesson that we can take in the United States and around the world to not uh, give uh, the police such a strong head that they decide that they're above the law, which is what I observed uh, with the police in the TRC. No sense of accountability or sense of uh, fear of punishment. I rem remember that the first thing that I was ever really shocked by as a young person growing up out here in the Midwest was the murder of Fred Hampton in Chicago, which was just a straight up killing, police killing. And there is something that is so discordant about the notion of those whose job is to serve and protect being the ones who are killing. But mm -hmm. I had a minister who reminded me that, you know, that's how it was in the Bible when baby Jesus was, uh, they were out getting all the baby men, <laughs> like, oh, this is a thousand years of this has been part of the approach of the Roman emperors or of the mayor or whomever. And so it's clear that the persistence is needed for both big changes and sustained mm -hmm. changes, but also in how human beings are. And we have to have the systems of civil rights and human rights and accountability, transparency. And we also now understand the necessity of being able to give voice to your pain and to your struggles as part of the larger mm -hmm. healing, mental, the mental health issues on the other side. So I feel like South Africa has broken some ground and now we're all trying to see what are the various flowers and other things that have grown from that mm -hmm. seed and to, uh, as they've done in Colombia, try to see what can be adapted, what, what can mm -hmm. be done. Um, and if I may add to that as well, Mark, is, uh, I mean, I cannot not mention this part, is leadership. We leadership through all of those, you know, you know the the tense moments um, that the country veered into almost into a civil war, um, a racial war. We were held together by leadership, even when there were others within, you know, the 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 the, the, the struggle who might have you know, disagreed that no, no is not the time to, but we were held together by leadership. Nothing would have been possible without a visionary, without a bold, without an ethical, and without a selfless leadership. As you know, South Africans and the younger generation, that's the one thing we are 
increasingly, increasingly, and every day even more appreciative of because you realize, as 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 you are also now in positions of responsibility, just how difficult, how difficult the choices must have been during those. There were so many points in time, so many points in time, um, in our history. Just before the 1994 elections, for example, there was a last-minute you know, rush because one of the main players was refusing to participate and that would have ended up as a disaster. There would have been no elections. Um, you know, when Chris Sani was, 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 was murdered, the, yeah. the, the, the leader of the SACP, I remember that moment. I remember that moment, um, you know, and how Madiba stood up. He was not the president then, but he addressed the nation. He was not the president, but he addressed the nation. and he spoke to people and he you know he led through that moment so we can never ever overstate the reason why as south africa we are where we are was because of a collective of selfless visionary bold and you know and and and, and leaders who basically put their lives for a future that many of them did not even live to see. So leadership is 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 vital. Nothing is able. Nothing can be achieved without that type of leadership. And I agree with you. The murder of Chris Hani uh, was closely resembled George Floyd. It was an outright assassination, and it was mm -hmm. clear that it was done with the intent to disrupt the election and cause mm -hmm. chaos. And as mm -hmm. we enter this presidential time where we have a presidential election, we have our Minneapolis Police Department standing with uh, our president against our mayor. And then we have this disastrous murder occur in broad daylight. I think the parallels to the killing of Chris Hani are very evident. So this um, gets into this way that we could think more specifically and concretely about ways that we can connect. So sometimes we have these organized opportunities like when you came here uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. on the program, the, the um, Meridian as an institution has helped make partnerships and young African leaders and uh, their Mandela Fellows, which is a relatively uh -huh. new one. Those are kind of organized ways and we have lots of friends on the, uh, audience today because our uh, Global Ties and Meridian and other organizations who really are the core of building international partnerships and relations have been great in getting the word out. I'm wondering if you have specific ideas of ways that institutions, uh, local governments, uh, anti-racism organizations, neighborhood associations, what are mm -hmm. concrete ways that different types of groups and institutions and agencies could connect with counterparts in South Africa for information sharing and for inspiration and to kind of keep this momentum going forward. Thanks, Mark. Um, social media has been a great tool for uh, those connectivities. But I think now as you ask me that question, what we do need is some portal where, for example, for your type of work that Global Minnesota does, Global Minnesota wanted to do and join up with a similarly minded organization. There should be, we should have a portal that will tell you 
in South Africa, for example, you could talk to the South African Institute of International Affairs and they are of the same view and they are of the same mind. I think because of the size of, um, of, 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 our, of our country and also the makeup of our country, the most visible organizations um, that you will find, for example, on the internet or on social media will be those organizations that are already getting funded, that are already, for example, in the urban areas, um, as opposed to be organizations that are in the rural areas. But I think there is scope there that we develop some sort of portal, whereas we could find and fine tune and do these connections. Otherwise, you would come in and not know where and where to go and how to find um, you know, your right partners. Universities are a great entry point because the way our society has been designed is that our, our universities are centered around communities. So if you were to go to the University of Forte, for example, they would know the local organizations that are working in particular fields. The University of Johannesburg would know the local communities working whether on civil rights or working with uh, communities or working on education, for example, because they will have those connections to your Sowetos, your Alexandras, and so forth. So it, 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 it's a different tactics that might be needed depending on the type of organizations that we need to connect. My organization, the International Leadership Institute, uh, takes people, pre-COVID of course, uh, to South Africa to connect with their professional counterparts at the University of Cape Town, Nelson Mandela Municipality, any university that has people of goodwill that are working on human rights and police accountability. There are peers that you'll find in South Africa that are well-resourced, they have more knowledge about uh, international uh, human rights standards, international laws on police accountability. Uh, very good partnerships can be formed by having these kinds of relationships. We have a question about the way that rugby played a role in uh -huh. some of the healing and coming together. And the question is, what can we learn in terms of the role of sports, young people, but sports in general uh, uh, from South Africa the, that might be um, part of how our movement evolves here in the United States? Mm -hmm. uh, sports at rugby in particular. You know, rugby had that particular context to it that you know very well, Mark. Yes. I think that's why the story captured um, the world's attention so much, let's say more than other codes in the country, because, um, you know, to, and, and, and to play in apartheid South Africa, to play rugby for the national team, um, you, you couldn't play if you, were a, you, if you were a black person, no matter how talented you were. So the Springboks became the symbol of you know, you, you, you don't want apartheid, you hate apartheid. So the Springboks are the symbol of apartheid. And what happened when President Mandela um, became president, again, going back to leadership, going back to leadership, he decided, he decided that he was going to take that moment and use that moment for something bigger than the sport. Effectively, that's what he did. 
he decided to take the moment and he convinced not only his um his 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 his, his co-leaders but he actually also convinced the players themselves who many were you know suspicious and also convinced the rest of the supporting nation as well so sport can be i think what sport does is it, it removes that 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 barrier because when people are on the field and when people are enjoying uh, that sense of camaraderie over their team there's no barrier again this was it last year last year we won again you should have seen us we lost our minds we forgot everything <laughs> we forgot everything we forgot everything we forgot you know we forgot everything all the challenges we still had because they went and they won and they came back with it when you have time and you will see um you know it's almost like a, a line that you can draw because last year our captain for the very first time was a black south african who grew up in challenging circumstances in a township outside of port elizabeth Ezwide, and who was brought up by his grandmother first time that trophy was in a black man's hand so we lost our minds and we could see also the transformation that the team itself it was more representative last year we could see ourselves in the team so from where Madiba took the team with that idea and where last year we were so sport has a way of breaking down the barriers. It builds that sense of we can do things together as long as we can just take down the barriers, which are man-made, which are man-made. We can US, take down the barriers and nothing, there's nothing that we can do. In the US, we can take an example from South Africa and look at a football team that disparages Native American people. We have softly called for the change of name for that team, but we haven't used the force of our will and our economic power to force that change. So every season, there is a stain on football because we haven't addressed the denigration of Native people. It denigrates all of us to have that team and have a quarterback who spoke about police violence locked out of the NFL. So those are issues we can address in the US that we haven't had the moral leadership to go forward. So people need to step up. Both of you have talked about leadership. Uh, Judge Lang, you have a leadership institute that you brought up leadership's role even in those really dangerous, most critical moments. We had a question about uh, any advice you have about the leadership skills that we should be focusing on with our relations with young leaders. What are the ones that were sustaining you that you've seen or you've incorporated your views that you would advise our younger viewers today and all of us uh, to incorporate those directly into our leadership responsibilities. Well, I think you were talking earlier about the Bible and you saw that leaders came from many places. Some leaders were called who were successful were very young. 
They had no established background. They had no following, but they were called and at the time they were uh, anointed to do a certain thing. So around the world, there are leaders who are eminently qualified. They do not need Americans choosing them or teaching them how to be leaders. We are blessed as people, as a hu human family with leaders all over the world. We need to listen to one another. We need to respect the skills that we bring to the table, to respect our diverse perspectives and to uh, commit to a common set of goals, which the 45 African nations did when they agreed that they will call for an investigation of the United States and other countries for racial injustice by the police. So we need to be able to recognize that leaders come from all walks of life and around the world. And with our organization, the International Leadership Institute, we work in partnership with global leaders. We don't replace them. We don't tell them what to do. Our success and our sustainability has been forming those long-term partnerships based on mutual respect. It feels like this era is one where we are saying goodbye to the elders who came through a Second World War, an anti-apartheid movement, a civil rights movement, and we're saying hello to a new generation and we're making sure that the stories are handed down <clears throat> and we have some new stories like the stories of this pandemic which is uh, that they was sharing about the shock to so many of not being able to have Easter as something never happened in the history. I'm wondering what you would be saying maybe a year from now that out of conversations like this, certain things happened and you're talking to an elder who you respect what they had done and made happen in their life and you were kind of bragging on humanities last year what would be something you would want to be bragging on that is like you just said these things are man-made these mm -hmm. are things that are done what would be really great to be bragging on a year from now it would really be great mark that there's finally concrete action taken to end racism in the world. It, 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 we cannot continue like this. We cannot continue like this. It is such a scourge and blemish on all of humanity. And what it does is that it infects all of society, be it, you know, sport, be it, as Judge Lang has shared, be it art, you see it in books, you see it in movies, you see it in, 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 you know, in, in, in sculptures, it infects everything. And the younger ones deserve better. They deserve better. Because, you know, it, it's, as Madiba said, no one is born racist. No one is born a racist. It is adults, it is adults that force and, and, and infect racism on children if 
next year, come next year, concretely, we could say from the movement now um, that is coming, that is, that is, that is, that is happening um, in the US, there's police reform being done finally, end of chokeholds, all of these terrible, terrible measures that have been done, end of stop and frisk on the basis of race, all of these terrible measures that have been done and of redlining, whether it's unofficial, you know that it's there, that because you have melanin, you cannot stay in a certain place. And of economic racism, where banks, by the way that you look, they don't give you credit, they don't give you loans, but somebody else they will give with exactly the same profile. So systems going back to that it's people if the people can make the systems then the people can disrupt and disregard the systems so if this movement can strengthen and be more resilient and we win these battles we win these battles and dismantle and dismantle and dismantle and i'm also speaking for south africa as well because we are also still dismantling and dismantling as well Judge. I would hope, but it's it's a real hope that in a year's time, we would come back together to celebrate that the 70% of families in America that are African descendant and Hispanic will not have been evicted from their homes that have not been able to pay their rent under this COVID-19 pandemic where they have been put out of work. I would hope that we would have an international standard on the use of force and the training of police officers. I would hope that in a year's time, we would have elected new officials who are responsive to the people with regard to human rights and economic justice. And I would hope that the young generation will grow to understand that Fighting injustice is not a moment, it is a lifetime because power hates a vacuum and power seeps back in when you're celebrating and thinking you don't have to address certain things anymore. In my uh, community, the elders say, keep on living. It means if you haven't seen the, the hundred year flood or the hurricane, keep on living because there are things that uh, will surprise you. And so we need to share with the younger generation the tools and also thank them for their technology and their adaptations uh, to be able to yeah. lead around the world with some of the things that they have done as part of the resistance, including Tulsa. <laughs> thank the young people. Yes, well, we do. I can promise that I will keep reaching out to keep this conversation going so we can see and a year from now we can look back but i also know there will be unexpected challenges and unexpected victories there'll be many things that come because life can take us into completely new directions mm -hmm. and uh, i want to urge people watching today to go on the website for Global Minnesota. Coming right up are two other programs of people, uh, of inspiring stories. One, which will be in Spanish, is a, a recent 
refugee and migrant now from Venezuela, talking about that journey, that direct experience. And of course, with 80 million people forcibly displaced around the planet, this is in the middle of the larger global struggle. And the second is a program on uh, women's leadership and democracy and in diplomacy. And we haven't talked about it much, but it is mm -hmm. in the press that the country is doing the best on COVID, have women prime ministers and presidents. It isn't said very often, but the places within our countries where we're doing the best are where women are leading the medical decision-making, the medical agencies and the state department. So um, the stories of migrants and refugees and people in the displacement of life on the planet, women in leadership, these are key elements to struggles in general. And the more we know and learn, the more we can share and be inspired and keep going. I have to say, you two women inspire me and you've been inspiring hundreds on this call, but it's that last notion that we have to keep at it. That's mm -hmm. the thing that I will have uh, etched in my heart and I'll be excited to have our next opportunity to gather with these folks and others, um, with groups like Meridian and Global Ties and all the other folks, uh, but also to um, be able to celebrate a little bit not so that we lose our minds or consciousness or let power to seep back in too much, but to celebrate as we can and then mm -hmm. recommit and then link arms together and help lift us up and keep each other inspired and comforted. Uh, there will be hard times, um, but that is the basis of the idea that a movement is the way that we bring about the change that we all want to see. I wanna thank you so much again for joining us today, for your leadership in the movement and for making the world a better place and for all you'll do in this next year before we gather again to brag a little bit. Thank you. Good day, everybody. And thank you again thank you. for joining us on this thank global you, conversation. Thank Bye thank now. You.